Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation Anshe Amet. Joining me are good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshe Chesed, New York City, and Rabbi Barry Chesler, Long Island, Salmashek, the Day School of Long Island. We want to begin first by acknowledging and extending our comfort to our good friend, Barry Chesler, on the loss of his brother. And uh, we are in the intermediate kind of strange period now, prior to going down to Florida, the funeral coming back and sitting Shiva next week, but uh, we extend to you our condolences on behalf of the whole community of our Parsha Talk audience, but tell us uh, first your brother's name and, and a word or two. So Bruce Evan Chesler, my younger brother, he was 64, Yosef Ben Yaman Chayim Ben Mordechai Miriam. He had been ill for some time and, you know, finally his heart gave out. So his death was not expected but not surprising either but a death is still a death and you know we heard the news early sunday morning and i'm waiting to go down as you mentioned later today for the funeral tomorrow so we say i'm a commune there are different ways to convey comfort right uh, we have we ashkenazim say may god comfort you among the mourners of jerusalem i always add the mourners of the house of israel too because well, it's particularly poignant this week of Tisha B'Av to comfort people with the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And we've talked in the past about about how Sephardim, the, the, they come, Mina Shemaim Tenuchamu, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's slightly different, slightly different. Short and sweet. You know, I mean, Mina Shemaim Tenuchamu, may you be comforted from heaven, is just a human wish. Like, you're in pain, I hope God takes care of you. The other one... Um, those who the mourners of Zion and and uh, and uh, Jerusalem, uh, those who mourn in Zion and for Jerusalem, it, it knits it into um, this this uh, midrashic motif. You know, the, the midrash says that those who mourn for Jerusalem will be privileged to see it. You know, will have the will have the co- compensation of seeing it rebuilt. Uh, you know, whether that was true for all those many centuries. Well, that's where you got Carl Weiner's 2,000-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he forgot that midrash. But um, I don't know, for better or for worse, that's a, a personal story you knit, knit into a national story, knit into a mythic theme. Um, I don't know if you... I like saying the Sephardic version better because it's just so short and sweet. You know, I... But, I, I, I yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a complicated formula. Especially, you know, in, in our in our era where we're not exactly, I mean, this is a big Tish above theme too. It's not exactly that we're mourning the, the you know, Jerusalem anymore. And you know, you go to Jerusalem, it's the most exhilarating experience, you know, to be in Jerusalem. Now there people aren't mourning Jerusalem, although we're, there's an idea that is there, which is why I like to also say, you know. There are members of the House of Israel who are in mourning now, too, you know, for different reasons, all sorts of things. So Right. The traditional formula emphasizes that we're all in mourning. Yeah. Right. So you're mourning your loss amidst a lot of other mourners. But I don't know that, especially today, for reasons that you suggest, that it brings comfort. Right. It's supposed to bring comfort, that comment. And instead, it kind of puts the mourner in a funny place. So don't talk so much because we're all in the same boat. Right. Well, all I want to say is is uh, we 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 
we want to comfort you. We want, you know, even uh, on Zoom, you. we're far away, and uh, we know that uh, it's a complicated set of days that you have here, especially you know, compounded with Tisha B'av in the in the midst of of a week of mourning for you. And just I, you know, I want to turn to to anyone who wants to send you condolences. They can turn to your Facebook page. They can write you personally, um, and uh, and just uh, you know, only only sweet memories and only comfort. But we. Have comfort in in the amazing parsha, Dvarim, which starts a new book. We're starting the fifth final book of the Torah, uh, and um, I be, let's take the thirty thousand uh, foot view here of this book before we get into some granular details. Uh, what what is this book about, and um, what is going on in this book? And so, I, I, Barry, I'm going to turn to you. Start off, you start us off with just the the headers or subtitle, if you will, or or however you want to shape and frame the book. So the first thing I think to note is that in Hebrew we refer to Devarim as Mishneh Torah, the second Torah, because a lot of things that appear in Devarim we've seen before, but nothing is actually repeated. Everything that we think we've seen before is given a twist. So we were talking before the show, we could look at the three historical books, say from Shemot, Exodus, Bayekral, Leviticus, and Numbers as kind of a newspaper version of what's going on. We have the immediacy of events unfolding before our eyes. And Devarim is Moses interpreting that sacred history for a generation that did not live through all of it because all the adults that left Egypt are now dead, except for Moses, Joshua, and Kalev. And a new generation has come up and they're going to be the generation that's going to go into the promised land without Moses. He's finally coming to realize that that wish is going to be denied him. And he is trying to fashion a narrative for them that they could take into the land so that they can succeed. All right. So I want to just focus in on that point because it's really, so we're, we're, we're really at a, we're at a geographical boundary moment. We're at a temporal boundary moment it's a transition moment and i think what i want to focus in on just to ask you both to, to reflect on is the moment when things move from the lived memory to to memory or to to tra- to the the memory that we have to transmit and if you could reflect on on examples that may be part of your own life or our own lives you know we're we're all of a certain generation uh which makes us so so attractive to to you know so many people, uh, but but this whole theme of you know the transition and transmission. So Jeremy, you want to take on this, and 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 is that what's going on here? Well, so I I, I just will do this um, with with again a, perhaps a, a moment of a Tisha B'Av reference. I remember a conversation I once had with with the great Yitz Greenberg, um, tremendous Jewish thinker and and writer. He lives um, in Jerusalem. <laughs> huh? He lives in Jerusalem now. Oh, they're in Jerusalem now? Yeah, yeah. Um, and a, a great, uh, in, you know, think about Christianity and interfaith work. But one of his great contributions is to put the Shoah at the center of contemporary Jewish thought. And he, he writes very movingly about uh, his own sort of eye-opening in the probably the late 50s, early 60s, in which he realized oh my gosh, I, I can't go on any longer uh, basically having ignored this. And, and I asked him one time, um, 
you know, whether he thought the Shoah would one day be knit into a narrative, you know, history uh, in the way that Tisha B'Av has been knit into a narrative history and given a kind of meaning. So Tisha B'Av, you know, it is, it's the story, story of destruction of two temples and lots of other bad things happened in the course of the summer months, um, you know, Spanish expulsion and crusade stuff. And, and so we as Jews have a way of talking about Av as the place where all these bad things happen. And, and what did our, you know, what does our Talmudic tradition say? There is a meaning to this. It is, you know, there's a meaning to this destruction. It is about our, uh, you know, following the letter of the law and not caring about people, says one Midrash, or, or Sinachinam and the stories of, of just pointless, you know, meaning, meaningless hatred and rivalry uh, for one another. And it's also, you know, the, the Mashiach is going to be born on Tisha B'Av afternoon, um, you know, and so from the depths of, like I was saying about the morning, morning for Zion in Jerusalem, there, it, we've knitted into a story um, uh, that that is not meaningless. It is that is meaningful. It makes sense. It, it tells us something about how we should go on living. And I asked Yitz Greenberg whether he thought that would ever happen to the show, and he said, "I certainly hope not." Right? I, I certainly hope it does not become um, a, a trope about you know uh, we had to do chuba and then we had to change. I mean, we all know that that certainly for uh, as a little dicey thing to say, um, I'm sure that the Zionists did everything they could to save every Jewish life. And they sort of proved their point that the diaspora had to end, that people had to come to, to the land of Israel. And that was part of the story that they told about the Shoah. Okay, all that's the, the Tisha B'Av, you know, part of this, but Moshe is giving them a way to think about these events. They didn't experience them. If you didn't experience the event, they may just be a fact about the past without particular meaning. But if I tell you a story in which it, it locates it in a value pattern, not just a fact pattern, and makes you think about your own life, then then that's what it's kind of all about. Um, I, I said before we started talking on the recording that to me one of the themes of this book, it appears this parsha, it appears at least three times in Moses's speech, is don't be afraid, uh, don't be afraid of the Canaanites, and don't be afraid of of you know to, to, to the judges. He says don't you know don't be intimidated by the people in your courtroom. And I think that Moses is telling them a story, is knitting these things into a story about, about bravery or fearlessness or courage. Um, I guess courage is the better word than fearlessness. Fearlessness is like stupidity, but courage is being able to, you know, keep your stuff together even when you are afraid. Like he's telling them a story about you've got a job to do. Uh, we're, we're almost there, but you can't, you can't be intimidated. You got to be courageous. I think so... Go ahead, Greg. You have to add, there's a transformation in the course of the book to your words, Jeremy, because the commands not to be afraid will become, and I think Parshat Vayelach, the positive command, Chazak V'yamatz, that it's not just about being afraid, it's about doing something positive to strengthen oneself and be courageous, I think is one way to translate it, because we begin telling ourselves not to be afraid but we have to get to a positive formulation if we're truly to conquer our fear, I think. So, so what, what I want to say is that this is, it's, it's, a, it's a long set of speeches, right? And, and if you do the, the, the real granular look at this, it's, it's, these are speeches given over uh, several days, several weeks even. Um, and, and I love the idea that 
you know, Moses was told at the end of the book of Bamidbar uh, to avenge the Midianites, and then you're going to die. And of course, you know, it's it's uh, close to a month later, and and he's he he wants to hold on a lot. But this is, you know, the question that I have is: is this a is he stalling here, or is he rebuking? And if he's rebuking, uh, you know, what what is it that we want? What, I mean, there, there's a certain contrast, conflict, I would say, with um, the sensibilities that, that, let's say, we would have. What would we expect if we were the speechwriters for Moses, writing his valedictory speeches here, you know how would you how would we we want to do this and and does he succeed or I would ask does he even fail at at convincing the people to to do the things that you know to to love God to fear God which are the you know the central themes of Deuteronomy I have to say it's you know based on uh, I guess the Shema which would be one of the central passages in Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God. You know it, that's a, a, a theme that is repeated many, many times. Uh, does this work? Do these speeches work? You know, is it, is it too brazen to ask that question? Well, if 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 one yardstick about whether they worked is whether we still preserve and care about and are kind of passionately attached to the words. Then yeah, <laughs> okay. So, so. Or, you know, uh, three thousand years later, whatever it is. Yeah, but that's a function of religion, not not necessarily the power. Of the, well, you know. So I, I think we have to start with your comment. If we were speechwriters, could we do better? And I think for those who love puns, I include myself in that number. The only thing that really surpasses Deuteronomy is Deutero Isaiah, <laughs> and I think that. You know, this really is a magnificent achievement. And I think it's best understood not as a stalling device in that Moses is trying to prolong his life to the last drop, but Moses is finally taking into account that there is going to be a life beyond him. And he has to take part in that to the best that he can by admonishing and teaching the people what they're going to need to do when he is gone. And that, I think, is the way I understand Sefer Dvarim. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. I think uh, Sefer Dvarim, first of all, I mean, they're, they're you know, speak about granular and, and stuff. Um, our, our listeners all know that, you know, in the, in the with, with some medieval and, and even ancient precedents, you know, anybody reading the Bible, like, really closely, Okay, I'm not telling you you can't have faith that God wrote the Torah, but then you have to you do have to explain some of the anomalies, like like Moses's death at the end, the final twelve verses of the Torah, which the rabbis say you know God dictated and Moses wrote it in his tears. Um, or, but Ibn Ezra has a list of I think I think he cites ten or twelve verses in which he thinks you know um, they couldn't have been really you know. Uh, they have to. They couldn't really be mosaic. They have to. They, they indicate a time that is different than Moses' time, and he includes the first, the first uh, lines of Devarim in that in that category. Um, so you do see a human hand. But any reader of the Torah, even apart from the question of the, that, in the 19th century, you know, people noticed that the that the books doesn't all look exactly coherent. That Vayikra looks really kind of different from Shmod, which looks certainly different from Breshit. But Deuteronomy looks the most different of them all. 
and it's got its own set of vocabulary and it's got its own rhetorical style. There is no Vaidavar Adonai Moshe Lemor in the whole book. It's all this first person speech of Moshe. And, and as Barry, you know, was, it was pointing at, the rhetoric, the beauty of the language, the poetic quality, oh, it's, it's simply amazing. And there are plenty of laws that appear only in Devarim. Um, and, and yeah, I think that Devarim shaped the religious content of Judaism. I mean, the, the fact that we say Shema every day, um, you know, and the fact that we say Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor V'Hadorah, I mean, this is this is Deuteronomy brought to life in the practice of, of every Jew. So I, I feel like the answer is is a, a pretty, you know, not not just did it work because we do in fact still read it and repeat it. That's also true of Baikra, which is which is maybe um, a little more foreign, but uh, Deuteronomy, I think, is a huge, huge impact overall in shaping um, shaping what you know how how Moshe Rabbeinu has taught us to be Jews. It's so it's so interesting, you know. He has to, in a way, sum up a forty-year career and even sum up a life, and and it's 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 an incredible life. And and there are important themes in in these speeches, and there are important kind of moments and and hints, you know, to to Moses' character. You know, we we cannot um, overlook the irony that Moses enters the stage uh, saying Lo Ishtvarim. You know, Anochi, I'm not a person of words, and then it's Ve'ela Ela Hadvarim. You know, it's a whole book of words. You know, there's there's just an implicit irony in the way that Moses, who you know is so afraid of talking, now you know can't stop talking. It's like you know, I always joke about the book of Dorim that there must have been people in the audience going like you know, <laughs> like they do sometimes for us when we Kiddush, it's Kiddush, Kiddush, you know this thing rabbi you know <laughs> it takes about three hours to, to to read the book you know and and there we get a glimpse of anger maybe we get a glimpse of his love we get a glimpse of certain passions we get you know the, the I, I can't escape thinking about um you know he says uh adonai eloheichem hirbaetchem He's saying, God has made you increase. Let's see, he's, this is right at the beginning of the speech. He's saying, look, I, you know, I, I can't take you on by myself. God has made you a numerous people. And then the next verse is, May God make you increase. In other words, it's like, you know, God made you a great nation. And puh, 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 you should only be a great nation. I, I hear a kind of fatherly, you know, um, uh, sentiment in Moses that he only wants the best for the people. And yet is, there's plenty of admonishment. There's, there's not, um, you know, it's not disguised, the, the anger. And then, of course, you know, and, and we'll probably get into this next week, the total frustration of, of not being allowed to enter the land. I, I can't escape reading this whole book with that lingering feeling that, that man, you guys, I can't do this. And you, you're going to get into the land that I want to go into so much. And, and I'm not allowed. And, and it's frustration. I don't think he, I mean, as, as, even though we're getting ahead of ourselves, it's, it's, he doesn't accept that. There's no acceptance of this in Moses. I don't know. Do you, do you agree with me or no? I, I think it's a bitter pill to swallow. When you come so close to reaching your goal and you're told that 
you can't reach it, that's very hard to take. But what I would add to what you said, Elliot, is that what becomes clear, I think, in Devarim is this image of Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moses here is a teacher. And in the other books, he's a leader for sure, a politician, um, a general of sorts, I suppose, although more like the president, the civilian authority, not the military authority. But he now is teaching the people. And one of the things I think that's useful to do sometimes is to imagine that we were with B'nai Yisrael listening to Moses. And, you know, we know it was only uh, 150 years ago, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, people would listen for three or four hours at a time to someone talk. You know, that was their entertainment. But here, I think what we have with Moses is uh, a, a teachable a, a teachable moment. It's it's I, um, I, 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 I want to go the other way, actually, because uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when um, when Moses is when when God says to Moses, you know, you're going to you're going to die and uh, place, you know, when Joshua is going to be the new leader, Moses actually begs God for um, uh, a, a person of spirit. Who will be able to do this? Ishasher Ruach Bo, who's got a good spirit in, uh, within that person. And God says, put your hand on Joshua, and Moses puts his two hands. And that, that is read in the rabbinic tradition as, you know, Moses didn't have jealousy of Joshua. He, he just, with full heart, wanted him to be his successor. And, um, and to me, we have in in this. I mean, we have the great midrash of Moses trying to persuade God not to, you know, not to end his life, and so that that frustration of mortality, that frustration of the unfulfilled ambition, the frustration of coming so close, uh, something so close and still so far out of reach, says the great late Tom Petty. Um, but I want to read it as a recognition of mortality. This is life, Rabotai, ladies and gentlemen. This is life. You work hard. You can see the future. You can't have the future. Um, you, you know, everybody dies with unfulfilled ambition and unfulfilled hopes. And, and and there's just a limit. 120 is like the speed of light. You don't get more. And um, and I and I like to read Moshe as as in fact embodying that that knowledge of the limitations of nature, of physicality, of mortality. Right. And looking, you know, putting with two with two hands on Joshua's head that he has the future. Yeah, it's interesting how that that connects back to Breshit, where where you know the, the allotment of a person's life is is 120. You know, go, and and Moses lives up to that. Um, you know, exactly. Um, I I want to I want to explore the the uh, a verse at the beginning of uh, the parsha. It says, "Be'ever ha'yarden be'eretz Moav." So across from the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to be'er, explain the Torah, this Torah saying. So in addition to the, the, the puzzle of, you know, who's writing this and what's the vantage point, it's, you know, and, and I think um, Eben Ezra, as you mentioned, you know, raises that possibility. Only someone from inside the land is, can be writing about a place outside the land. But um, I want to focus in on this word be'er et Torah. Be'er means to explain, um, and uh, I'm I'm 
inspired by Rashi's comment on this, which is that Moses speaks in 70 languages here, right? And, and that's based on a nice convoluted Midrashic reading of this Be'er and another time that the word Be'er occurs in the Torah and that, and that they make the connection that it's 70 languages. And, and of course, you know, the commentaries on Rashi say like, well, what's the point? Why, why, why does he need to speak in 70 languages? I mean, the Israelites are only speaking in one language. Why does he need to speak in 70 languages? And they say, it's not really 70 languages he is using. It's 70 intentions or 70 meanings. And this opens up to this rich theme that Shivim Panim Torah, that there are so many ways and that, that everything is delivered here in this speech. And that from uh, this, this verse and, and many verses similar to this, we get an idea of the multiplicity of interpretive uh, vantage points uh, on the Torah, and and um, and I think what the, you know the, the the opening, the license for let's say the three of us, but but everyone who is watching and listening us as well, um, you have your right, you have your you have a position, you have you have a perspective that is already placed at the beginning. I don't know if you want to kind of relate or re- reflect on, on this theme, Shivim Panim La Torah. Jim, or Barrett. <laughs> okay, so I, I think that when we think of the Torah, Moses speaking in 70 languages, the intent is to make the Torah universal. It's for everyone. But when we say that the Torah has Shivim Panim, 70 faces, it means that each individual finds his or her own meaning. And this is an important lesson for a teacher because we don't reach each student in the same way. And we have to be prepared to reach each student in a way that makes whatever we're teaching accessible to that person. And Moses' job is not just to teach B'nai Israel as a collective, but also as individuals. And therefore, he's expounding the Torah because there's a multiplicity of meanings for the large crowd that is before him. For sure. And I think one of the, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of rabbinics, you know, rabbinic literature is to feel that uh, the Torah is like inexhaustibly meaningful, that there's, you know, all kinds of stuff between the lines and below the surfaces. And I, everything Barry said is 100% correct. Shivim la, you know, Shivim Lashon, the 70, the mythic 70 languages of, of the earth means humanity and its universality. Um, I think we could talk about whether or not the Torah really envisions other nations becoming becoming part of Israel or just admiring Israel, uh, that everybody has to have, you know, his or her own relationship to the Torah and, and it speaks to them in their own way. Uh, but I, I also think another meaning of Shivim Panim La Torah, Ho'il Moshe Be'er Torah, so Moses begins to, you know, he, start, he starts to, to expound it is because that is not a, you know, finishable, finishable task, right? There's, this is, he's beginning the exposition and you cannot fail to recognize, even though Be'er in this sentence is the verb to, to, um, to explain, it sounds like Be'er of the word well. Well, like there's deep, deep water in the well, and he's and he's pulling the bucket up. He's taking more and more water out of the well, and that's he's the first. That's why he's Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the first of the rabbis to to take this text and exp, expound the, the hidden meaning 
And, you know, we're, we, we remain his students. I want to go back to the idea of languages, you know, uh, having grown up in a different country where they actually speak more than one language. Um, it was very common in Canada to hear public pronouncements in English and in French uh, and to move seamlessly between the two languages um, and, uh, you know, you, you, if you watch uh, speeches in the parliament or if you watch, you know, other, other kinds of public presentations, they, they're always done uh, in, in English and in French, almost equally, maybe not, maybe a little more, more uh, in English. The point is that, that it comes out a little differently in French, you know, whatever is being said, because that's what language is. Language always gives you a different kind of nuance, whether it's the music of the language, the accent of the language, or the 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 experience of the language um you know it's interesting you know we we read the torah in hebrew and we chant the torah and we listen to the torah and we're always you know, and we here we are we're talking and, and speaking in in english and of course it comes out differently you know if if we were doing this this parsha talk in hebrew as native israelis uh this would be a totally different experience a totally different it would be akin to eating a different kind of, you know, food, really. You get a different set of, of nuances and meaning. And, and, you know, okay, so, so the, the, the idea uh, that the entire people is speaking different languages, that, that doesn't make much sense because the people there are, are, you know, have one language. Although, you know, in their tribes, in their families, they may have, you know, small, small uh, nuances and dialects. But um, the idea that, that we speak Torah in different, in actually different languages and actually mean things. And look, you know, you can pull up, I have, you know, in, in, like you do, I have uh, 16 translations of the Torah right in front of me in my library. Each one is, you know, pulls out a different meaning. I have Everett Fox here, the JPS, the old JPS, the new JPS, the, you know, it's, they're all, different there because they pull out different things and, and of course once you get into the the the, the world of parshanut and commentaries it, it's endless it's really endless so the question then is this is are the rabbis trying to say this is the experience this the experience is well conversation talking the translation translating it into different languages that are meaningful to you you have to add one more thing here which is that the ancient, everything you said is, is very, you know, illuminating and, and right on point. We're always going to add one more point to it. The ancient Torah reading itself included a Targum. Yes. Like somebody, somebody read Hebrew yeah. and then somebody else had an official, our onclos is thought to be like the official Babylonian translation that they used to translate it into Aramaic. Um, because even though Hebrew and Aramaic, to, to my eyes, are pretty close, um, the people that was vernacular for the people. So it's like it's like as if you had a running translation of Shakespeare. Like it's English, but it's not my English. So I need somebody to explain it a little bit. Um, That's a great, yeah. So throughout Jewish history, there have been different vernacular languages that have dominated. So when Ramban was writing and the poets of medieval Spain, they wrote a fair amount in Arabic. And um, some of Ramban's most important works are actually in Arabic. Today we use English. And one of the things I often find amusing I like to use Renat Yisrael, the Sidur, the 
from the land of Israel, and they translate all the Aramaic portions, which used to be understood as a native language, back into Hebrew, so that the native Hebrew speaker can translate it. All of Rambam's great works, only scholars read them in Arabic. Almost everyone else reads them in a translation into Hebrew. So, and you know, there's a great story I think about Saul Bellow, you know, famous English writer, French Canadian Elliot, an homage to you, of course. And someone asked him when he in Israel when his books were coming out in Hebrew. He said, you know, something to the fact that what do I need to have them come out in Hebrew? I write in English. He says because they won't last until they're in Hebrew. This and that, that story is that, that Agnon congratulated Bello when a translation of his Hebrew, his translation into Hebrew of, I guess, probably uh, Augie March or whatever, one of the novels, he said, congratulations, now you will last. <laughs> That's, it's so fascinating. Lachine, Quebec, by the way, is where he's born. But, okay, so, so I, you know, and, and here I know we're, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to say that there are different ways to experience the Torah. On, on the basic level of language, there are different ways to experience the Torah, whether it is chanting in the synagogue, whether it's reading it from a text, or I have, I have to share with you this experience. You know, I, 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 I do the 929 project, which I recommend to everybody. It's beautiful, you know, Parakut uh, of Tanakh a day. And I, I've gotten into the habit of, of putting it on my iPhone and listening, listening to it being read. The reader is such an amazing reader, Omer Frankel. He, such a beautiful, beautiful way of reading. I have to tell you, I learn things from the way he reads the verse. You know, we you kulano chachamim, kulano nevonim. You know, we think we're so smart, but just to pick up the text and to read it with just a little pause, a little bit of you know emphasis, you know, a little bit of a question in the voice, and that's different from chanting. It's different from you know what you you know. Jeremy, you learned the partial last week, right? It's there's there's an intense involvement when you learn to read the Torah, you know, chanting it. There's no question about how intimate that is, and, and we could spend a lot of time talking about it. But but what what we're saying is what I'm trying to say is that there's so many ways to experience the Torah, not just only visually by reading the text not only in the synagogue by listening to the Torah reading, and not only by reading translations, try reading it with 15 translations, with, with two translations. And, you know, and this is, I mean, maybe you can refer back to the Buber Rosenzweig translation in German, which also tried to elicit a, another sense, another face to the Torah, Barry. So what I would add, our teacher and colleague, Bert Vazaski, used to urge people all the time to actually listen to the Torah reading at Shul, and not to follow along with a humash, which is our custom, because we're readers and not listeners. But the other idea that comes to mind, and this may have been Vazaski's as well, is one year in my synagogue for Rosh Hashanah, we used a Targum, verse by verse, only we translated it into English. And it's a very powerful experience to hear the Torah read out loud, both in Hebrew and in English, because suddenly most people understand what's being said. And that also gives us an access that sometimes when we read or chant in Hebrew, we don't get. You want to know another another technique? And I learned this. I, I remember learning this many years ago, but I just saw it somewhere. Put your own name in the verse. Okay. So, for example, Ele Hadvarim, Elliot. Asher Diber Moshe El Kol Yisrael, Elliot. Bever Hayardim I mean, once you put your name in there, in the space, 
Yeah. It's, a, it's a different experience. In other words, it's yeah. saying, it's talking to me. It's talking to me. And of course, it's talking to everybody that's listening to us, especially our good friends at Machana Ramah and the Berkshires. We are so glad that you were able to spend time with us. I don't know if you have a, a, a concluding word there, Jeremy, another word, or Elad Varim, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I, I think this is our longest episode, so... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> the last word are words, Devarim. Devarim. Yeah. Thank you all for watching, for listening. We, we really appreciate your spending the time with us. We enjoy your comments, and we hope to see you next week on another edition of Parsha Talk. You want to write to Barry Chesler and offer condolences again on the Facebook page. We'll see you again. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.